Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tonight for Night's Science, we are looking at the mysterious ultra-marathon runner of the bird world, our very own bar-tailed godwit. Their 12,000-kilometre migration from their home in New Zealand to Alaska is the longest non-stop trip of any bird species, and a new UN report is shining a light on its shrinking habitat Dr. Phil Batley is an Associate Professor of Zoology at Massey University, and he joins me now. Kia ora to you. Good day, Neil. Nice to have you here, Phil. Um, so it's nearly that time of the year uh, where the goblets fly the nest, as it were. Um, they start out in Aotearoa. Where do they go? So you're right. From from here, they'll take off, most of them in March, sometime, you know, sometime in the late afternoon, typically. Uh, they take off in small groups, depending on how many birds are around, and they fly for typically about eight days or so, and that will take them all the way up to the Yellow Sea uh, region. As long as things go well, they'll end up in the coasts of China um, and the Korean Peninsula, some to Japan. So that, as I said, takes them about a week, a little bit more, and it's nonstop. They'll just get up and keep going. Wait, so they so they go for they, where do they sleep? Where where do they sleep? How do they drink? So many questions, Phil. So many questions. Okay, so they don't and they don't, as far really? as I can tell. They just go. So, yeah. So like the the drinking thing is is partly probably to do with how they fuel their flights. Mm-hmm. So they they get incredibly fat, and then they break down fat uh, for for fuel, and also they build up a lot of muscle protein and things like that. It also gets broken down during flight. The process of turning that into energy releases water into their system. So probably the main source of water, like not a whole lot, but could be simply what their body produces internally um, or they're, you know, just picking up a bit of moisture on the way. Uh, they're probably very thirsty when they get to their destination. But, um, yeah, the sleep question is a really, is a really interesting one because, you know, there's a couple of ideas. They, they may be... Maybe they just do these little micro naps on one side of the brain and keep the other one going. Wow. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just build up a really big sleep deficit and sleep it off at the other end. And like, it's interesting. We've we've got observations, little snippets in the field from people over decades that, you know, could suggest any of these might be true. So when you see a flock of birds just landing, they'll go and have a big drink. So clearly they are thirsty. And they are hungry. And there was a, an account years ago, like in the 1980s, of somebody at Korokoro Miranda. A flock of birds obviously had arrived. And then when the tide went down, all the local birds went off to feed. And these ones just kept sleeping. Mm. So maybe they are just arriving incredibly tired and um, just having to cope with it afterwards. Yeah, you'd imagine they'd be pretty cranky upon um, making landfall. But. Um, that's neither here nor there, I suppose. I, I guess it must actually, it must be very difficult to study something like this because you can't really, 
you can't really attach a camera to, to one of these birds, can you? And and you certainly can't fly along alongside them. How do you conduct this sort of research? So, like, it, it used to be joining the dots. You know, we would look at them here in New Zealand and we would put uh, individual markings on, we'd put colour bands on birds or a little engraved leg flag on their leg uh-huh. that would tell us which bird was which. And then the first year we did that with Godwitz, it was really exciting. We got uh, a couple of records from South Korea and then we got records from Alaska. So we started in those days just sort of piecing together a bird would be seen here and then it would be seen in Korea. And then the next year it would be seen in exactly that same spot in Korea. Mm. And that actually happened like four years in a row. We had the same bird watcher in Korea go out and see the same bird on the same roost in the same bay, which was pretty cool. So that was like how we used to do it when that was all that was available to us. But in sort of in the late uh, the late 2000s was when, you know, um, satellite tracking started to get more accessible, started to get smaller. And if you look at the, the pictures of the earliest like radio tracking done on, on birds, there's a cover of a National Geographic from the 1970s, and it's got a penguin like that's wearing a complete... Um, wearing a complete sleeveless jacket with a transmitter on the back and it's little flippers out the side. This was the size of things. And the earliest transmitters to go on on flying birds or on albatrosses and these transmitters were hundreds of grams. Right. So a godwit only weighs 300 grams. Yeah. Took a long time for those to get small enough. But nowadays you can get transmitters that are five grams or two grams. And these are things that we can put on them and know that they're not having an impact on the bird. So... We now are able to put little satellite tags on birds that will tell us where they are, when they're, particularly when they're flying. They've got little solar panels on them. So we're able to piece together, like observe them in flight and infer what we can uh, about them. We have the technology. So we're still, yeah, yeah, we're still learning. Like it's expensive stuff. So we, you know, we, most people don't get the opportunity to put many out and not all of them work, of course. Some of them fall off before the birds fly. But from that, we now know quite a lot more about how they fly, where they fly, what conditions they stop in, where they need to have a stop if, if the conditions are bad. We also get to see the amazing things that these birds can do when things don't go their way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested in tales of when things go wrong, by, migration, what birds do. By all means, but f- let, let me let me um, ask you a question that might segue into that, which is um, how on earth the birds actually know where to fly? Yeah. Oh, okay. Good question. And I guess we'd all like the answer to that. So the, if I take it right back, so for most birds, all they need to do is follow a bird that's done it before. So that's fairly easy, as long as you're not the first one to be doing it. Yeah. So godwits are social when they fly. So before they depart, they'll spend like an hour or maybe two hours talking very loudly, saying, oh, I'm going to migrate. Anyone want to come with me? So they call. There are a lot of calling. They form a little group. They they have baths, communal baths together, get themselves all spruced up, and then eventually they'll take off and they'll fly. So it could be 10 birds. It could be 50 birds all going together. Now, the chances, most of those birds have done this flight before and they know what they're doing. Um, but the ones that are really uh, amazing or intriguing are the ones that haven't done it before and so these are the juveniles when they come south from alaska so adults and juveniles they they don't stay in family groups they all go to the mud flats and they fuel up it takes them you know a month or six weeks or maybe two two months for some birds 
and then the adults tend to migrate before the juveniles are ready. So some of the juveniles, the earliest juveniles will get to fly with the latest adults. That's pretty sweet. They'll know where they're going. But there's going to come a time when probably all that's left are birds that have never done this before. They're about to take off and fly the longest flight of anything in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what uh, has been, that's what intrigues everyone as to how they do it, how many of them try it and never make it. Um, and so uh, a colleague, uh, Jesse Conklin, who came out to New Zealand and did his PhD on goblets out here, uh, and other colleagues in, in America. So he's from the USA, and they did some work in Alaska where they tried to put they put satellite tags on chicks, on on baby godwits. Mm -hmm. They had to put little radio tags on them when they were small and then find them again when they were older and then put a, a tag on them which just goes looped over their legs, a little harness on their back, and one of these birds took off. The other ones had dropped their transmitters or maybe they'd been taken by a falcon or something like that. Mm -hmm. And this bird is the is the bird that clearly didn't quite know where it was going because it ended up flying directly between Australia and New Zealand, and it was sort of coming right down the middle and ended up going to Tasmania in the longest flight of anything that we've tracked. <laughs> so those birds have probably just got a program that says, like, fly roughly this direction and hold on for dear life because you, eventually you'll hit land or you won't. Uh, in the first flight, they can have no idea of where they're going. They don't have a they don't have a destination in mind. And the amazing thing is, we get juveniles that probably come straight to New Zealand, so they've only got this little sliver of land to head for. And you know, once they're past the Pacific Islands, there's no dropouts. So we often get uh, the amazing thing is, you often get juveniles in really silly, out of the way places. They they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. So they sometimes end up in the subantarctics where they've missed New Zealand and ended up on Camp Island, things like that. Um, yeah, so like that's, you know, one thing is knowing where should I be flying and for how long. The other thing is is actually navigating and what are the systems that they use to orient, uh, to get a direction or to hold a direction when you're in crosswinds and these sorts of things. And we don't. We're like we've got tracks of birds, but we haven't really looked at what possible um, uh, compass mechanisms might they be using on these long flights. But once once they've done it and they're doing it, you know, sort of as adults, um, they're pretty impressive with their ability to hold a hold a course even when you've got these different winds from different sides and so on. Mm. I'm getting a bunch of um, messages in Phil from people um, asking. Variations on a question, which is essentially, you know, what what's the situation with the overall sort of health of the bar-tailed godwit, and how bad is is the effect of of humans on these amazing creatures? And conveniently, we've got this new report um, from the Convention of the on the Conservation of Migratory Species of Wild Animals from the from the UN, um, which sort of links into this. And I mean, I was interested to read that. I mean, it's not great for birds, but but it's not it's not absolutely catastrophic like it might be for some sorts of marine mammals. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's interesting because the the stats in the report are based mainly around the um, uh, Convention on Migratory Species lists of endangered species. So they've got like a the here's the really bad ones, and here's the ones that we think are in some trouble. Right. Um, and so there's different numbers of species in those lists. For instance, you know, there's not that many aquatic mammals in the world. 
there's not that many aquatic reptiles that they're talking about. It's mainly turtles. Mm. Um, but there's hundreds of species of, of migratory birds. So there's like almost a thousand species of birds. So as a proportion, the species in these other groups are doing worse than the birds are. But in a way, it's those are of the endangered species. Those ones are really bad of the migratory birds, even the ones on these lists. Some of them are really bad, but, you know, they're probably not as critically endangered as some of these groups. So, you know, things that these other groups have commercial harvests on them. They, you know, sharks that are getting caught for, for finning, things like that. They have direct impact threats right. on them, whereas many of our birds aren't harvested in the same way. Now, they may be subject to some uh, killings in some places on their, on their flyways, and there are other groups of birds that are subject to a lot. So a lot of the land birds, things that pass through Asia or across the Mediterranean, some of the, those areas like Cyprus and France, they've got really high hunting pressure on them. So our birds probably don't have that hunting pressure in quite the same way, but they certainly have a lot of pressures on their habitats, particularly around the Yellow Sea. And uh, for some species, the red knots that go up into Russia, there probably is some hunting pressure on those as they pass along uh, Kamchatka Peninsula mm. around there. The biggest issues for like shorebirds, which live on, on mudflats, tidal flats around the edges of, of the land, the really acute ones in the last several decades or, or more have has been um, destruction of tidal flats to be converted into land. Mm. So this is certainly something that uh, South Korea initially and, and China were doing in, in massive, massive ways that we couldn't comprehend. It's, you know, you could take the, you could reclaim the entire Manukau Harbour, the mm. area of that in a, in a couple of years. That's the scale at which Gee. this this can can go on up there with these huge barges that just suck up the sediment and pump it around. So that was what was happening. And that's probably been responsible for quite a lot of declines over the past several decades. Um, the godwits have been hit in a slightly different way as, as well, because most of the godwits in the flyway, or at least a large proportion of them, would go to one nature reserve in China on the border with North Korea, Yalujang mm -hmm. Nature Reserve. It's a fabulous place with tens of thousands of, of godwits and great knots and things going there. And there was a species of shellfish that was really abundant and the birds were were um, doing super well. I visited there in 2010. It was all rosy. I thought, this is great. These birds have such an easy time of it. Mm. But the next year, those shellfish hadn't reproduced. They'd had no young ones. They only had older ones. And those older ones weren't very well. And they were dying on the surface. And then that shellfish just virtually disappeared from this from this entire ecosystem. It's like 70 kilometer long reserve and, and the food supply just that disappeared. And it's possible that that was a result of a port development that pushed the fresh water from the Yalu River further offshore, changing the salinity of the coastline. So making it saltier because that freshwater influence wasn't reaching the shore. Mm. It's not confirmed, but maybe that's that's a case where the loss of that food resource has come about because of a development by people and if it and if that's true then probably that shellfish won't come back and the birds are having to cope with uh, that situation so yeah they do have pressures on them and the, the one advantage that godwits have is that they're only passing through asia once and uh, and so when the the food resources in alaska are fabulous. They must be fabulous mm -hmm. to, to fuel these flights. 
and there's very little development there. So the flight from Alaska to uh, New Zealand, well, maybe the resources are uh, better than they are and more sort of more sure in the long term than the ones in Asia. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating stuff. That tension between you know human needs in terms of economic development and and room for housing and and how that affects. Uh, you know the 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 animal world. It's um it's it's a very interesting tension that one, isn't it? Phil, I'm, I'm, it's been lovely chatting to you about the uh, the Bartel God, but we're out of time, I'm afraid. But um, thank you very much for for coming on the show this evening. It's been it's been nice having you on here. My pleasure. And that was Dr. Phil Batley. Phil is an associate professor of zoology at Massey University. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.